Welcome to the Potter's House Salmon Arm Podcast. We are a Bible-believing church located in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. We are proudly part of the Christian Fellowship Ministries with 3,000 churches around the world. We are a church focused on world evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Here we will share recent sermons from PHSA Church and other sermons from throughout our fellowship. I am Pastor David Bickford, and I will be your host for this podcast. I thank you for listening today, and we hope these messages are a blessing to you and bring you closer to God. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, My name again is uh, David Bickford. I'm the pastor at the Salmon Arm Potter's House. And today's message I have is going to be is entitled Haters Going to Hate or you know, subheading is, do you have what it takes? And the text that we'll be using today is Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. So you can go ahead and turn there if you're following along in your Bible. And, um, you know, this message, like even off the right off the title, you kind of get an idea of of where we are in society today. You, you probably even heard that term. It's a, it's a little bit of a dated term at this point, haters going to hate. But the idea behind it is, you know, as we look at, you know, leaders, as we look at people who do amazing things, oftentimes that they're looked at negatively in the time that they actually live, because it takes a lot of courage to live up to, you know, God's word. It takes a lot of courage to live up to, you know, a statute that is that is bigger than oneself. Oftentimes in society today, we see people who are going to, you know, just go with the crowd because they would rather be not seen or they would rather you know just be kind of in the masses rather than stand out even if that means standing on you know on some on a on a moral high ground or standing upon the word of god and an illustration i came across that i think is is perfect for this is is abraham lincoln you know the president lincoln and you know he he's routinely voted as one of the top tier presidents of the united states He's sometimes number one, sometimes George Washington's number one. I personally would vote for Washington as number one for the primary reason that he was offered to be king of the United of the United States and he turned it down. And you know, it, it was it was a big move. And he was the first uh, president as well. He he set the statute that held for a long time that uh you know presidents should only run for two terms and then they should go back to their own lives. And so he did that. He set that precedent. And it was only uh, it was all the way up until when when um, President Roosevelt during World War II decided to continue to run for, uh, for office, even though he was, you know, fairly feeble of body towards the end of his term. And he actually died in office. You you look at, you know, what happened with that situation and they, even his own party aligned with the opposition party to make a president to make a constitutional amendment so that, that no other president can you know stay past two terms but that goes back to George Washington so that's that's a little bit of american history for you there and George Washington again he's my pick for number 1 but Abraham Lincoln is is definitely solidly in there for second place but a lot of americans felt very differently about President Lincoln when he was in office. So unlike George Washington, who had the support of pretty much everybody in government at the time, again, they wanted to make him king. So when when President Washington was there, 
you know, he was already like coming off of uh, the victory of the Revolutionary War, being thrust into service one more time as president, having the support of everybody, you know, all parties in the most part. And, you know, that that's like a much different situation than what you see with Abraham Lincoln, right? You know, there's you, Abraham Lincoln oversaw the United States during this huge schism that was happening within the country, this fracturing between the North and South. And it wasn't just Southerners who didn't, you know, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln to some extent, but that that is usually what you end up hearing about mostly. So while Lincoln won, you know, the presidential election, he with the electoral college votes, rather, he won 180 out of the 303 electoral college votes. He only received 40% of the popular vote. Now, this might seem a little funny, you know, to, to those in Canada listening to this, because it's not, it's pretty routine in Canada for a prime minister to get elected with only at these days 34% of the people voting, not even for him, but for his party, because it's a parliamentary system and it's it's different than a presidential election. But this is pretty un, un you know unusual in the United States, the fact that, you know, only receiving 40% of the popular vote, because you even hear that today, where they'll say, well, so-and-so won the popular vote, but they they didn't win because of the Electoral College. The, the whole purpose of the Electoral College is to give each state voice in who's going to govern the whole. Whereas, you know, in a parliamentary system, it's it's just the, the majority, or the plurality, rather, not even the majority, but the plurality get to control who who runs the country. And so you're getting actually a little bit of a better re result because you know the provinces can get left out in Canada and you can end up with, you know, government that does that that doesn't have to do anything for certain provinces that are not in favor with the parliamentary leadership whereas in the United States with the electoral college even like all the states are getting a a voice in who's going to govern them in the federal, you know, in, in the presidential office. So I'm kind of rambling here with a little bit of background because I think it's, I think it's relevant for people to understand, you know, what's going on to, in today's day it, and can compare and contrast that to how things were run in the past, because we do live in a precarious time on the precipice of a lot of, you know, division and, and, you know, tearing apart of the social fabric that, has made countries like Canada, the United States, so strong in, in the past. But I don't want people to just think, oh, it's so it's so bad right now that they overlook the fact that we have come you know, through some pretty harsh times in society. So again, when Lincoln won, he had 180 out of 303 electoral votes, but he only had 40% of the popular vote. The Salem Advocate, an Illinois newspaper, wasn't very impressed with the new president saying he is no more capable of becoming a statesman, nay, even a moderate one, than the brang ass can become a noble lion. So pardon the language, they're obviously calling him a donkey rather than a lion in this situation. And so this is, again, this is a northern newspaper at the time. So the Illinois newspaper, that's even from his own state. And they had very little faith that this that this upstart, you know, Abraham Lincoln was going to amount to much of anything at all. And then as Civil War kicked off and the war progressed, he 
he still got terrible new reviews in of his 1863 Gettysburg Address. It got panned by the Pennsylvania Patriot News, again, a northern newspaper, which you'd think would have been more sympathetic to Abraham Lincoln. But but no, they said, we pass over the silly remarks of the president, the article said, for the credit of the nation, we are willing that the veil of oblivion shall be dropped over them and that they shall no more be repeated or thought of. On the 150th anniversary of this, the paper decided to issue a retraction because clearly as time progressed, Abraham Lincoln's, you know, reputation had achieved such a high level that it's almost, it was almost a mark against the newspaper to be thinking so little of Abraham Lincoln. So it's not like, uh, you know, the public liked him much more than even these newspapers at this time. You got to remember, you're being ripped apart. The country's being ripped apart by civil war. And there was, you know, hundreds of thousands of casualties, like roughly 600,000 casualties that happened in the civil war when you count for both sides. So this was a traumatic time. This is a horribly bloody time for the United States of America. And in the draft rights of 1863, it, it looked pretty, pretty likely that, you know, President Lincoln might have lost his reelection campaign against George McLennan, his old general, if it weren't for General William Sherman's march to the south, that would have given him a little bit more support and giving given people more of a reason to stand behind him as the war was turning in the favor of the Union. And then later on, on April 14th, 1865, the, when the Civil War ended, John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln. This assassination started the, the reassessment of Lincoln. People started looking at Lincoln in a different way. And as times went on, people saw him as the great emancipator who saved the Union. Several states even celebrated Lincoln's birthday. That being said, none of those, those states were in the South. So it's, it's a very interesting thing to think of when you look at the history of Abraham Lincoln, you think of this great man who's standing in the gap for a nation, you know, who's now considered to be the great emancipator who freed the African-American slaves. But at the time that he was living, he was derided. He was often, you know, people would attempt to shame him or even belittle his intelligence or his capabilities. And he had to be able to focus through on these, you know, on, it, it blocking those ideas out, blocking out that rest of the world and living according to the standards that he had set for himself. And it's an amazing thing that he was able to do what he did, but he didn't get any of the rewards for it largely during his time on earth. So as we look at our text in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, let's go ahead and read that now. And it says, love your enemies. You have heard that it is was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the, on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So I like to believe that Abraham Lincoln understood 
the spirit of this verse of scripture, the, or this, this portion of scripture, because even after the civil war ended, you know, they, there, there was an immediate stance from him to say, we need to heal the nation. And some of the people who derided him, even at that time, after the civil war was coming to a close, that was their big complaint with him was the fact that he was trying to heal the nation from the horrendous war that had just happened. But we, we have other examples of people who in their own time are being derided by the people they're, they're the very people they are there to serve. Jesus was hated because he knew who he was. During the life of Jesus, he had a way of causing others to dislike him. Actually, from his birth, there were people who hated the very idea of him. They hated him enough to call for his death as a young child. In Matthew 2, 16 through 18, we see the story of Herod want, like plotting to kill the children just for the opportunity to potentially kill Jesus. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all of the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. The reality of Jesus is that he he that his coming was meant both as celebration for those who are waiting, searching or living in expectation of a Messiah, and to be a challenge for those who oppose the world or the word and the rule of the living God. It is important to remember that the people of Israel had been looking for a warrior king that would bring back the golden age of King David and King Solomon. They were looking for a political and military leader that would free them from the tyrannical rule of the Romans. They were not looking for a Messiah to come and be the redeemer of the world. They allowed their earthly desires to jade their perspectives, and many of, of them missed Jesus' purpose entirely. Even after Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the grave, the Jewish people in large could not see and still cannot see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In Psalm 118.22, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus knew this, and he used the scripture himself. And you can see that in Mark 12.10, and later on in Luke 20.17 and Matthew 21.42 as well. This is at the core of the Christian faith. Jesus is the Messiah, regardless what anyone else thinks and believes. And we can see this as Peter hones in on it in Acts 4, 11 through 12. He says, this is, or this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no one can lay a foundation other than what that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It is in truth and, and on this foundation that brings many to hate Jesus, to despise the light he shines on the world and on our own souls. It is only through the revelation of his divinity that we can turn to him in repentance and receive the gift of grace and salvation through him. This message is jarring, and so it, it's so definitive 
that it shakes us to our core. And that's the point. As we, Let's look at three reasons that, can, that caused people to hate Jesus during his time and even now. The first one is confronting the status quo. We already discussed this point at a high level, but let's dig into it a little bit more. We'll also reframe this within our current cultural context. Jesus was and still is the OG counterculture poster boy, if you will. Now, he's not counter God's culture, but he is the original person to be in counterculture to the religious you know, paradigm and to the governing body that was ruling in Israel at the time. A lot of people like to say that Jesus is a rebel, and I don't like that because it paints Jesus in the light of having no authority. Jesus has all authority. He is God. He is the, the son of God and therefore his emissary, and he is the benchmark that all of us will be judged by. So that is being said, let's look at how he dealt with the empty religion that he found when he, when he was born in Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, 1 through 3, and then in 27, 28, we read, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. How often do we see people today preach the word of God, but not live it in practice? We see that in, in all parts of society, people who... You know, if you want to, you want to even touch on you know non-religious things like political things. We have we have leaders, the world like the worldwide that tell us that we need to reduce carbon emissions while they fly around in private jets, expending countless amounts of carbon that they tell us is is killing the planet, but yet they do not live a life of exampleship. They live a life of telling us one thing and then living to a different standard themselves. So when Jesus came on the scene, he saw the same thing. He sees the scribes and the Pharisees preaching the law, but not living according to the spirit of the law. In verse 27, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all, and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So again, it's, it's a bit of a silly analogy, but if you look again at people like the, the rich and the famous and the political elites, they, they fly around the world expending tons of amounts of carbon that they tell us is killing the planet. And then what do they do? They say, oh, well, we're going to pay penance. We're going to pay you know carbon offsets for the travel that we do. They do that because they have an abundance of wealth and they can play this game and try to say, well, you shouldn't do it. But I can because I I am I'm better than you. And they don't come out like some of them do come out and strictly say that. But the most of them try to hide behind the idea that, well, I'm doing this for for your benefit. And that's what you see the the Pharisees and the, and the uh, Sadducees doing in the time of Jesus is they would say these beautiful things and appear outwardly to be very pious, but they would be making new rules for themselves so that they can. Rather than honoring their, their father and their mother, they can be paying to the church an additional duty, if you will, so that they don't have to honor their father and their mother. They were outwardly trying to appear righteous, but inwardly they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In today's world, 
We see many that claim Christ or claim understanding, but in the same breath, they deny Christ's teachings. They make a mockery of his message by their unwillingness or by their willingness rather to water it down. And doing this, they render it devoid of hope and salvation. You cannot take the hard truths of Christ away from the gospel without reducing the gospel to nothing. If you take away the sinfulness of man, then you take away the need of a savior, the sacrifice of the lamb. The Pharisees and Sadducees strictly enforced the traditional laws of the Old Testament, but then they also made laws to enforce those laws on top of the, 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 the laws that they were attesting to. These enforcers of the laws had, pro, had a problem, though. They were hypocritical in spirit. They elevated the law while ignoring its purpose. They stripped Judaism of the compassion that was intrinsic to God's purpose. They also elevated themselves above that law. When Jesus came on the scene, he was not shy at pointing out the emptiness of the religion and how the law had become hollow in the hearts of leaders. The law's purpose is to point man towards a relationship with God. It shows us our sinful nature and our need for salvation from God. The religious leaders were not using it to redeem people, but rather to elevate themselves and condemn people. They made the temple a marketplace to enrich themselves and to cast dispersions on those who could not pay for the redemption that they were offering. We see that in, in you know, certain areas of society today. And again, like if you look at the carbon tax, carbon credits, that's an idea that, well, you can you can assuage your guilt for using carbon if you pay this tax. Where does that tax go? It's similar to this kind of you know temple marketplace. You're paying for redemption that uh, keeps up or up you know uplifts this this life of the the people of the temple market and the and the Sadducees and Pharisees in a way that was never intended to. They're enriching themselves off your guilt. And that's not what the that's not what the law was there for. The law was there to show you the need for sacrifice. And the in the temple, the the the, the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees were there to bring you back into relationship with, with the Lord through keeping yourself clean in the law and using sacrifice to cover your sin. They weren't providing a service to you. They were rather guilting you into something that was not necessary in the first place and taking advantage of your guilt. In Matthew 21, 12 through 16, Jesus cleanses the temple. And it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw that the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, babies, have you have prepared praise? So they tried to get him and stick it to him and say, hey, you shouldn't be letting them say this to you. And he again called to his, his own understanding of who he was, which infuriated them even, even more. So the next thing, right, the next way that, that Jesus would cause people to hate him or to cause people to dislike him 
The second point is tax collectors, drunkards, brawlers, and prostitutes. Ministering to those in need was a huge trademark for Jesus. When we look back on the earthly ministry of Jesus, it can be uncomfortable for many of us. Jesus went out of his way to bring his message to some of the most unseemly groups of people. These people would have been ostracized by the Jewish leaders. In fact, the idea or the term uh, poor in, in the, the time of Jesus or even in the earlier times in Israeli society, poor didn't necessarily only mean poor because you didn't have a lot of money. It could mean poor in stature because you were of a lower caste in the society. You were a foreigner. It could mean poor in spirit because you were you were unclean. Right. But he, you know, because the tax collector would be considered to be poor, but but they were not, you know, poor because they didn't have money. They actually were very well off fiscally, but they were very considered poor because of their standing in society. So these people would have been ostracized by the Jewish leaders. There was this common understanding that once you fell into a life of sin, you were counted as lost. Now, that is not scriptural, of course, but rather it became the practice to write people off, write off certain people in certain groups in, the, in Israeli society. Jesus challenged this mindset head on. In the Gospel of Mark, we can see that Jesus was judged for eating with sinners. Mark 2, 16 through 17 says, And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors? And sinners. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Later in the chapter, Jesus was judged for not strictly adhering to the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath. Mark 2 23 through 27 says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even on the Sabbath. So I want to point out here that what the disciples were doing was not unlawful in any legal sense. In fact, the law does, not, does allow for the gleaning of the fields. The point here is that there was a clear breach with the purpose of the law and its implementation by the ruling elites. It's also, it also challenges us today to be more compassionate for those around us. Jesus spent a good amount of time with the sick and needy, and this was not typical for religious leaders of the time. They liked the, the, liked the limelight and the prestige of their office. It was an offense to have such a popular teacher to the people like Jesus taking away their attention. And I want to consider with you here again as just a personal idea, you know, thought, the idea of plucking the grain because they were hungry as they walked down the road. How's that any different than you actually eating a meal on the Sabbath in your house? You're still eating. So the idea of, you know, you're walking through a field and you take something, you rub it in your hand so you can have the, the grain to eat and you'd eat it as you walk. 
they were looking that at that as labor and not but they wouldn't be looking at eating their their meal at home as labor but they saw it as a way of attacking the disciples of Jesus Christ it's just an interesting an interesting thought to think how far down the road people can go to try to you know make make an argument when god's on the move but they want to stop it because it doesn't it doesn't jive with their theology and we have to be careful with that as christians in a larger sense we have to be very careful with judging you know other people for stuff that's 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 not it's not a major you know threat of theology obviously they're key tenets but for example there's there's moves within different groups of Christianity that that say well you should only have this kind of music or you should have only this kind of you know that kind of music but if the music is there to glorify God then maybe we should just be a little bit more careful on how we judge things as long as it's not you know directly going against you know the scripture but uh, that's an aside that's something you could discuss with me offline if you ever wanted to but getting back into the message that you know that that we have in front of ourselves i want to just focus in on how these these Sadducees and Pharisees they were really just upset that Jesus was getting their the attention that they wanted for themselves so this isn't the main reason that Jesus was disliked by the Sadducees and Pharisees if all he did was challenge the status quo and minister to sinners, there's little doubt that he that we would not even know the name of Jesus. The real reason that Jesus was hated and crucified was because of his deity. In the end, Jesus is the Son of God, and he knew it. So Jesus, this brings me to my final point, is that Jesus is the only way. And this is the whole crux of it. This is really what we get down to even in our own life is this coming to the personal understanding, the personal relationship with Jesus as our Lord and Savior. In Matthew 27, we pick up with Jesus being handed over to Pilate. The religious leaders of Judah did not have the power to perform capital punishment, and that is what they intended for with Jesus. In this chapter, we see that Pilate knew that this was a power play by the Jewish elites to remove a rival that they were envious of. Matthew 27, 17 through 18 says, So when they handed, or so when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Then after they called for the release of Barabbas, they called for the crucifixion of Jesus. And then we pick up again in 20 verses 22 and 23. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called the called Christ. They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. How did the leaders of the Jewish people get here? How did the ministry of Jesus stoke such, so much anger, hostility, and hate? I will not deny that this was demonic at its root, but there, there is something, else, something here that is very important for us to understand. Christ is the only way. I'm going to say it again. Christ is the only way. There is no other way, no other road or path to salvation. Jesus is the Son of God and is God. His divinity is the reason the rulers of Israel were so adamantly against him and his ministry. This is the thing that separates Christianity from the other faiths, 
that come from Abraham as well is, is our recognition that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Lamb of sacrifice for all of us. His divinity is the reason that the rulers of Israel were so adamantly against him in his ministry. The reason that Jesus was hated was because of who he is. Without any room for, for movement, he is the Messiah, and, and it was his claim of godness that challenged the world. It says, recognize me, and I will wash away your sins, and you will be saved. Deny me, and there is no other way to the Father, and you are condemned. The solid, the solid concrete statement leaves no room for the priests to maneuver. They had to either accept Christ or deny Christ. But in denying Christ, they would also have to give up their authority and submit to him. Pride played this huge part in the role, and it still does in our world today. And then I go back, you know, when Christ was ministering to sinners, he gave them the same, the same you know, opportunity. He said, sin no more and follow me. It's the acceptance of his deity and the turning away and repenting of sins that brings you into the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's such a challenge, even in our own society, that people will do everything in their power to deny it because they, they want to hold on to what they feel is their own control. In, react, in, in reality, it's their pride. In fact, pride is everywhere today. The world today is proud of all sorts of things that Christ tells us to turn away from. He tells us to turn away from our pride and to lay it at his feet to go and sin no more and be saved by his grace. In the end, the crucifixion was necessary. Jesus had to be sacrificed so that he could overcome death and rise again and prove his divinity. And we know that this has been proven and that his, that his divinity is assured because there were so many eyewitnesses seeing Christ after his, his crucifixion. To show that he had the power that he claimed and that he can forgive the sins of the repentant sinner, that is why he had to die and rise again. That we all can turn to him no matter our condition and be redeemed. So as we close, if Jesus was so vilified, how can we expect anything less for ourselves? I believe that we are, we are not pushing the boundaries of our society closer to God than we are allowing it to be pulled away from God. Just like Abraham Lincoln, if he wouldn't have stood solidly on keeping the union together, then the union would have pulled apart. And you wouldn't have a United States of America anymore. You would have had maybe a smaller United States of, of North, the United Northern States of America. And then you would have had a Confederate Southern States of America. And who knows how much longer the American slave trade would have gone on had Abraham Lincoln not been successful and stand upon his principles? What kind of horrors would we have in the world because of that decision not to stand on, his, on, on the solid ground that he did? Because we were a lot of world wars that came after the American Civil War. Who would have won World War I? Who would have won World War II? What would have happened with history if not for Abraham Lincoln keeping the United States of America together. Society has a lot of issues currently, but we have to be strong enough to stand for something that matters. We need to be resolute and stable. 
and we can find the necessary firmness and stability in Jesus Christ. But it does come with a cost. In the Marine Corps, when you get saved, you know, it's it was a typical thing that you're immediately going to be tagged Bible thumper if you truly were getting saved. That doesn't mean like the guy who goes to mass or the guy who goes to church and then goes out and parties that evening with the boys or that week with the boys. But when you were a Christian and you truly gave your life to Jesus Christ, you would get immediately tagged with the term Bible thumper. This moniker was meant to ridicule you. It was also meant to put a target on your back. People would try and get you to swear, try and get you to drink or do something unchristian so they could ridicule you. They, they would do this because they wanted to see you fail. A lot of people want to see you fail. They can't handle, you know, and a lot of people do fail because they can't handle the persecution, the ridicule. That is why we need to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. That is why we have to pray. That is why we have to read our word. That is why we have to find a Bible-believing church, go on outreach, and gather with the brethren and preach the gospel. We do these things because it instills in us a, a solid foundation built on Christ. The foundation is Christ, rather, and then you're building your house on that foundation. The more we share in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the closer we're able to get to understanding the weight of his sacrifice. And it brings us back to our text in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, about loving your enemies. You've heard that, that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So as I close, if I could have every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're driving, obviously, keep your hands on the wheel and your eyes open. We need to remember the stance that Abraham Lincoln made, because it it, it harkens back to the, 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 the stableness of his mindset to say, no, what is right is this. And just because nobody else agrees doesn't mean that it's, it, it isn't right. And that's why we rely on Jesus Christ. We rely on the word of God for our own lives. Because Jesus came and confronted empty religion. So therefore, we can't live a life of empty religion. We need to pour ourselves in with reading the word of God and prayer. So that way we can pour ourselves out and show you know, the, the, the outcasts of society the love of Jesus Christ. To show them that Jesus loved you and, and, and died for your sins. We can't do that if we're living an empty religion. We have to fill ourselves with the word of God. We have to pray, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So that way we can exemplify Jesus' love to the outcasts. And we can bring them the message of the gospel, showing him that he is willing to forgive sinners who are willing to turn and repent and sin no more. And then as they accept him as the only authority, they will be saved and set free. And that's what I, you know, I preach today is a message of salvation. 
a message of salvation that, yes, haters are going to hate, as the title of the sermon indicates. But do you have what it takes to stand up to this world's hate and to live a life that exemplifies Jesus' sacrifice? Jesus died for you. He died for me. He died for you. And it's, it's by his grace that you can be set free from the bondage of sin. So if that's you this morning and this message is resonating with you and, and you're feeling you know, a tug on your heart, because maybe you've been dancing around the message of the gospel, you've been dancing around with Jesus, you need to give it in. You need to give in to him. You need to say, you know what, you know, God, I'm going to do it your way. And if that's you, you can signify that, that uplifted hand. I can't see it, but God sees it. And if you mean it, then that then that's got impact, far-reaching impact that you just you just don't have any way of contemplating at this moment. But if that is you, then repeat after me, dear Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins. And I accept him as my Lord and my Savior, and I repent of my sins in Jesus' name. Amen. Simple prayer. You're accepting that you're a sinner. You're repenting or turning away from your sin, and you're accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's salvation. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You might have heard terms like baptism, things of that nature. That's great. You can, being baptized is a public showing of, of your acceptance of Jesus Christ, and that's a great and powerful thing. But grace comes the second you do that with, your, with an open heart, and you do that honestly, just like the, the thief on the cross. So don't be discouraged, but move on in your new life in Christ. And read your Bible. Get a Bible. You can download any, any number of apps that have a good translation, King James, NIV, ESV, you name it. Read the Word of God. Pray, cry out to him. Find a Bible-believing church. And if you need help finding a Bible-believing church, I'm in Salmon Arm. Come to our church. Reach out. The, the contact info is in the show notes. But if you don't have a if you're not in Salmon Arm and you need to help finding a, a church, we have over 3,500 churches globally. We've got them all over the place. Be more than happy to put you in contact with one of our churches because gathering with the brethren is a very powerful thing. And it helps you with your relationship with Jesus Christ. It gives you power to dive in. It gives you something solid. And so I just want to thank you for listening to me today. And if you can do me a favor, if this message has impacted you, you know, like it, share it, subscribe, because we're trying to get the message of Jesus Christ out of as many people as we can. And it's always going to be a simple message that Jesus came to earth, died for your sins, so that you can be saved in his name. Thank you again, and I can't wait for you to come back next time. God bless. Thank you for listening to the PHSA Potter's House Salmon Arm Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Potter's House underscore Salmon Arm to keep up to date on what we are doing, join the conversation, and discover how Jesus Christ can revolutionize your life.